The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. Today we are talking with someone I have not only been watching on TV for decades, but I have looked up to and admired for just as long. From a high school dropout turned professional skateboarder at 16 years old to TV star, producer, and serial entrepreneur, and CEO of the most fitting name possible, the Deer Deck Machine, the one, the only, Rob Deer Deck. Rob, I am certain there isn't a podcast currently published that wouldn't love to have you as a guest. So genuinely, thank you for giving us your time and coming on to Trading Secrets. Oh, thank you for having me. Sorry about my, you know, I've responded like three months later to your DM. You know what I mean? Uh, I was before, just, before I was before I was able to say like, hey, let's make it happen. Sorry about that, <laughs> Rob. Honestly, if you want full transparency, we uh, we're, we're fully honest there. When you even responded, I was like, pinch. I was telling the boys, look at Rob's coming on. Everyone's like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're excited to have you. And and first things first, before I even you know get into your rise to fame, business, entrepreneurial, business savvy, all that, I, I got to ask you this, I saw that in 2011 on an episode of Fantasy Factory, you are an ordained minister and you married your sister. And in July, I have to do the same thing for my close friends, John Walter and Michaela Lynn. So I got to tell you, I'm getting a little nervous about it. And I I watched your episode. I saw it on YouTube. You got any advice for me? Anything? Yeah. I mean, look, number one, it it was so much more fitting because it was my sister, right? It was like so amazing that like, uh, and and make no mistake, I manipulated that a little bit. Like they hadn't, they weren't even engaged. Okay. Okay. And I was like, um, I asked, I was trying to come up with television episode ideas. And I asked my mom if they'd been talking about getting engaged. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh yeah, they said they were just going to go to the courthouse. So I said, look, you tell her if she's willing to get married in the next three months, I'll do the craziest wedding, like around an episode of television. And then I called her to be like, oh, what am I doing? I'm manipulating her life for, for the sake of my, for my <laughs> like You're like a bachelor show. producer, man. Yeah. And, so, and that really, for real, that's really how bad it is. And so I said, hey, I don't even like, I'm so sorry. She's like, what? Like, and I'm like, did, did mom call you? She's like, yeah. She's like, we've never even spoke about uh, uh, getting engaged. And so then I feel even worse. I said, can you put him on the phone? I said, look, man, I'm, I'm sorry for manipulating your life, but- for real, if you want to get married in like three months, I'll throw you guys the craziest wedding. And they yeah. got engaged, committed to it. And then I went through the process, right? Now, of course, I had to, I still even felt bad. I went on and for another episode and bought them a house, right? Just oh, wow. so they had like a deep asset and something to build their family around. Because I felt like sure. I was like manipulating their life at such a high <laughs> level. But I would only say this, you know what I mean? I... I got into character yeah. as if I was like a true minister, like a man of God. Like I am, I want to shepherd this journey of connection and love to forever. Right. So, okay. and, and of course I ordained like an entire, I, saw uh, that God, I looked like a Pope. You know what I mean? It was really over the top. My mom was like, this is not legal. This is not legal. <laughs> and I took her to a church as part of the episode to prove, look, this minister right here is going to tell you it's real. But yeah, look, I think you're, you seem like a guy who always gets extra prepared. Yeah. So as long as you put that same effort into being highly, highly prepared, so it's effortless for you. Because at the end of the day, 
you know, a, a wedding is a, is a beautiful thing and, and forging this connection that, that lasts forever. So it's your, your journey, your job to shepherd it flawlessly. Shepherd it flawlessly and get in the, the actual position to be there. I'm going to put myself in the position. I love it. All right. So let's get into it a little bit. So, you know, what I'm doing, and as you said, I, you know, prepared for this, I'm researching you up and down, Robin. Your accolades are endless, right? As professional skateboarder, reality TV star. I mean, actor, for those that, that don't know that are listening, world record holder. I could, I could literally just keep going and going. I'm going to stop. But what's interesting is like, it's not like you have this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you have this like specific niche. I see that your industry exposure and your ventures are just so diversified to A to Z. So I'm trying to back into it. Like how, how did this like all happen? So the only way in my attempt to like rewire, uh, Rob, who you are today versus how you got there is starting from day one. And from what I read is that at 12, you were signing contracts to being sponsored. And by 16, you decided to leave high school to pursue professional skateboarding. So I got to, you know, I'm curious on your thoughts on higher education stuff. Before I get that, what kind of money is a 12-year-old receiving for sponsorships? And how at 16 do you foresee your career so much in this lane that you're willing to just completely leave school to pursue it? Well, look, the way you're articulating it, it feels like this glorious path of like, at 16, <laughs> he had found his pathway to capital. And by by 20, <laughs> he had evolved. Like, this is really the, the truth of the matter at, at that age. Yeah. Recognized at age 12 and became sponsored. And so really what ends up happening now, you basically get, you travel for free and you get free skate gear, right? Cool. And at 12 years old, you won the lottery. Yeah, you won the lottery. Huge. You know what I mean? And so it's like, huge. what does that embed in your soul at 12 years old? I'm going to be a pro skateboarder, mm-hmm. right? It's not a matter of like whether or not that's a career path. At the time, you know, that was when Tony Hawk, it, it was sort of at his peak power in the 80s and, and sort oh. of being a pro skateboarder had kind of uh, became a thing. But by the time I was 16, the skateboarding industry had completely collapsed, Right. And it was it was virtually non-existent. And and to give you context, in the year that I quit high school and became a professional skateboarder, I I think total that year I made twelve hundred dollars. Right. And and in that year, I had a signature board with my name on it, my very first signature board. And in that year in December, I sold one board and got a check for two dollars. I got a two dollar royalty check. Right. And. And so that would just give you context to how small it actually was. So if you can imagine the pushback that I got from my parents and family and everybody around me of like this idea of like, this isn't even like a career, you know, like you can't make a living being a professional skateboarder. And a, a few months later, like the company that I had turned pro for the alien workshop that was uh, based out of Dayton, Ohio. See, I grew up with a bunch of serial entrepreneurs around serial entrepreneurs. That's kind of where I began to like, just, I just assumed I would go and start many companies in my lifetime. I grew up around it. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I thought that's just what you did, but I was guaranteed a thousand dollars a month if I moved to California to be in the epicenter of sort of the professional skateboarding culture and all the media and magazines and every everything. And to and me- And what age was that, Rob? That was 17. 17, okay. And so I hit the lottery. 
You trying to tell me I just seventeen twenty bucks a, is huge. <laughs> a, you know what I mean? A thousand dollars a month. You know what I mean? It felt like oh my god, I really did make it. You know, so mm-hmm. it, very humble beginnings for the sport. And and the reality of it is, is I grew with the sport over twenty years and played so a, a huge part in a lot of the milestones that evolved it into the stage. You know, e- even you know the league that I built ultimately is the format that I. Uh, spent many years like needling to get just perfect is now what the format is for the Olympics, right? Like we really carved the path with like skateboarding to the Olympics compared to when I turned pro when it was like, you know, super, super niche, very, very underground sport. And how quickly, I mean, that's fascinating kind of what you guys have done since then, how you've carved the lane for the sport. But at that time, you're making a thousand bucks a month, 17 again. Like you said, you're hitting the lottery, right? You give you make 20, 40 bucks playing poker in the basement in high school. You're, you're, you're at least I was celebrating. So how quickly did that escalate? Was there some big upside in those contracts? Did it get to a point where like 17, you're making a thousand bucks a month and by 20, you're skating making 10K a month? I mean, how quickly did it escalate for you? You know, I I think really when I got to California, because you got to understand I was professional for the alien workshop that was based in Dayton, Ohio, right? So it was the only skateboarding company that was one of the top companies or up and coming startups in skateboarding that wasn't based in California. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got to California, like I was this raw talent that then all the California companies started offering me money to quit the small startup from Ohio. And Uh so they eventually then bumped up my guarantee from a thousand to 2,500. Right. Which was then like, what? (laughs) What? you know, and, and then I, you know, slowly started getting, you know, I built my first company at that, that point, right. When I first got out of, when I was 17 years old, I, I founded and created a skateboard truck company called, Orion Trucks. That was the first pure build that I had ever done. Uh, and first company that I created right, right, right when I turned 18 after living out there for a little bit. And so now I'm making money from that and getting other sort of sponsors. And then it really escalated when we formed D, when DC Shoes formed and then they formed a street, street skating division. And then I had the first signature shoe on mm-hmm. DC Shoes. Mm-hmm. Then now you're talking, it went from making 50, 60,000 and to making 200, 250,000 out of nowhere. Now, now you're learning the big boy lessons of, you know, you're uneducated, you have no financial background, you know, you, you know, you, you don't know anything about taxes, you don't know anything about investing, you don't know anything about anything. And all of a sudden you're making $250,000, right? I think there, that was sort of like the big first major transition for me and the sport as it was beginning to evolve and pros now were making real, the top pros were now making real money. That's unreal. And so at that point, how old are you around when this starts to happen? I was 22 at that point, right? So I was still pretty young, 22, 23. Like I want yeah. to say my 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 first signature shoe came out at 21. And, and it really why I ended up, the company eventually went on and was acquired for 500 million, right? And, and I got a big payout from it because mm-hmm. they gave me equity in the company because, or I'm sorry, I got a, acquired 500, God. Uh, 100 million, 100 million. Uh, but I got equity in the business because 
in the first years of that as a startup, instead of giving me the, the royalty money that I was owed, it was being invested back into the business, right? Gotcha. So then eventually we started getting our royalties. But since we allowed them to, to basically in the beginning reinvest our royalty money, they gave us all equity, the, the, the founding sort of skaters for it in the beginning, which we had a pretty significant payout when it got acquired by Quicksilver 10 years later, you know. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's so many things right in those few sentences that so many people listening can take away is taking royalties, investing it back in the company and getting equity. Because I also did hear you say in a podcast that it also, it always used to be cash, right? Like getting cash up front. And you thought how that was so great until you realize you're creating value for other people's equity. And I think so many people that are going to work every day as a W2 employee or working for a company, if you don't have some type of tied to the action, you're freelance. And just like that, tomorrow you could be gone and the sweat equity you put in has zero value. So for you, when was like kind of the first time that you realized I need to do more than just get some of these cash grabs. I need to be investing it in equity and making the long-term play there. Since I was like born an entrepreneur and then raised by entrepreneur wolves, I always had sort of one foot in where's where where's the opportunity for me here and 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 even when you look at receiving money right because money money comes in a lot of a varying different ways right but but at the end of the day it's what you get liquid pay taxes on and what that tax rate is and what you're left over is what you now have to invest right and and then how you invest that now determines your potential of compounding and building wealth over time right yeah. so it, it's a very complex like matrix when you are an entertainer, an athlete, uh, you have a platform, right? Because now you've got to make the decision, like, am I better off? Do I want to use my platform in this startup and, and hope that it eventually returns some sort of value to me from an equity position, which I would say uh, a lot of the influencers, athletes and world, they, they, they give up so much of their personal services for equity that never materializes, right? A lot of times they even invest in companies that they give their personal services and capital that never materialize, right? So there's this extraordinary balance that I think is very difficult to learn without yeah. some sort of former financial background, right? When you are right. just, especially when I'm a marketing brand creative, like athlete in those days, like I could put together like companies and put together plans and, and, and do it for royalties and equity. But I didn't fully understand what, when was the right time to do that. Right. Because sure, sure. if you go and do a big deal with Pepsi, you want a royalty deal. Right. You know that they have the infrastructure. You don't, you don't even like the scale of the opportunity is based off of the quality of the operator or the, the partnership that you actually have. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you can't, like the average person couldn't even do diligence on an opportunity. If someone brings an influencer, like we'll give you 20% of this company, which is already a red flag that uh, <laughs> to promote this on your Instagram and be a part, they're like, yeah, let's do it. Right. Like yeah. having no idea on the skill set of this entrepreneur, like, like even the business model behind this concept, like, is there even some sort of way to create a return on this? Because they see so many stories in the news of people, you know, getting wealthy off of, you know, uh, skinny market 
Margarita and, you know, Skinny Girl <laughs> and like, you know, all these like, and, and Jessica Alba and Honest Co. You keep looking at all these one-off things that sure. produce this big return for celebrities, athletes, influencers that you just want to replicate without having the, the, the deeper knowledge to be able to diligence and opportunity to understand what the right one is. That now is something that took me many years of navigation and doing nonstop deals to refine over time, you know. Two questions. Give me, Rob, if you could, what the headline of success for you was when you did. So people that are out there that are thinking, maybe I should get into, maybe I should go to my annual review and ask for some equity in this company as opposed to just a raise. One, what is the headline of success for Rob when a DC sold? What did it look like? Like, what was that payout like? That's, that's one. And two, and the contrary to that, huge success. Did you ever have any businesses that you did invest in? Uh, we'll say through your learning days, because now <laughs> the stuff you have going is is next level. That did go belly up, and you did lose a couple bucks. Oh, I mean, I look, I yeah, come on, like I did so many different things. <laughs> no one you know talks I mean? about their and, losses. And, oh, it's like <laughs> it, it's it's so funny. Like you know, of you know, since I launched the Deer Dick Machine in 2016, mm -hmm. um, you know, including the 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 two builds we have in the middle now, we have 16 builds, right? We've sold mm -hmm. five. Um, really, we just had another merger this week, so really call it six acquisitions, right? Like, in most of the stuff that we do ends up in the, it's acquired or between like 75 and 150 million, right? Yeah. So it's like, and then we try to have between, by the time it gets acquired, 10 to like, you know, in, in the case of even the production company, had 70% of it when it was acquired, right? So it's super yeah. unique aspect. And we have one, only one so far that's just gone to zero. Wow. And like, rather than like, rather than, than take it off, the website, we're putting an RIP date beginning to end, you know, 2016 to 2020, like RIP, right? Like lesson learned, right? Sure. And, I love and we want to claim just as much, like we want to put our losses on there as much as our wins, right? So we identify all of our exits and acquisitions and then our very first loss that we are about to take. Now, it's a testament to the type of people that I build with. Like no sooner did he put that business out, did that business go under than did he step in and take in another existing company public that I'm now on a public board of, which is which is something I didn't really anticipate the complexities that's of, pretty cool. which is a lot more. But that's a testament of how real he was as an entrepreneur and how the market timing can kill an idea. You know what I mean? There's all of these incredible X factors that will determine whether or not a company gets past the valley of death and finds product market fit and becomes successful. Um, but again, I go back to the failures of nonstop portion, right? And, and I'd say one of my biggest failures is, is this company Alien Workshop that I turned pro for got acquired by Burton Snowboards in the late 2000s. And I had now gone on to have multiple television shows, you know, massive product lines and made millions of dollars. And I was going to buy it back and save it. You know what I mean? Like it was now owned by this big corporate company. So I, against advice of everyone around me, I acquired uh, the IP of the business for a couple million dollars. And then when I got it, it was just 
a hornet's nest of chaos, right? <laughs> it was, and I didn't understand the business side well enough yet. Mm-hmm. I, it, it was a low margin business, you know, very, what I call now core to core, where you're only selling skateboards to skateboarders, right? Yeah. I thought I could take and turn it into this like $20 million business with my television exposure. But at the end of the day, there wasn't enough margin in the product. There wasn't enough scale in the distribution. People loved wearing skate shoes, but they didn't buy skateboards that watch TV, right? It was this brutal lesson. Then the way that the company was like, like operated, I just didn't know. I hadn't learned enough and I was burned. Then I was cash flowing the business, right? So now it had seared into my soul that I needed to learn business multidimensionally, right? Like Mm -hmm. I was always like, you can market and sales your way out of this thing rather than fully understand that like, nope, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's your brand. It's your, it's, it's first off the consumer and the scale of the consumer. Then what that brand says to that consumer, the product line scale that you can create your earned media, and your owned media of how you speak, your marketing, sales, operations, finance, and leadership ties it all together, right? That's how a business engine works. At the time, I thought I could market my way out of anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up cash flowing that business and was and ended up losing $4 million. Wow. And, and instead of the lessons that I learned was I learned like everything about supply chain. I learned everything from the operational side. I learned to see business multidimensionally. I learned to understand the consumer and market size way that all these deep lessons through the searing burn of $4 million. And then what I knew more than anything, that this business was never meant to be bigger than a few million dollars and that it would was never meant to be acquired and that I'm a capitalist and I have to love the fun is the sport of it. Like I want to yeah. come up with the idea. I want to see it grow and see somebody buy it. Like I want to live the life cycle and I can't do that with this, this business. And I gave it mm-hmm. back to the original founders, right? So there was three founders who had originally uh, built the company and I just literally gave all of the IP back to them. And like, like I've learned my lessons. I don't want to like, I don't want to own this business and then trickle in like little like dividend checks when it's barely profitable and argue with you on how much you should be spending marketing this business. Like I learned my lessons. And then I, rather than like, I knew that I had a clearer vision now of like how I wanted to build businesses and cause it was emotional too. Right. Because not only was it, it was a, I'm a pro skateboarder from Ohio, went and made it, it's kind of crossover, like in the eyes of the core industry on the sellout edge, right? Sure. Like, Cause now sure. I'm on TV, right? Yeah. On all these shows on Reality MTV, TV right? And stuff, yeah. So I keep digging my roots deeper, right? I started the professional skateboarding league. I built, all, I started a foundation, built all these parks. Like I'm giving back to the sport while I'm, like using the sport as a platform. Um, and, and then when I bought that company and bought it back from the snowboard company, it was like, man, he's really, he's really about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's doing the right thing. And then that thing just imploded once I got it. And it was this, so if you can imagine the pain It wasn't just money I was losing. It was understanding, getting so much clarity on how little I really know about business on top of losing millions, on top of 
getting like hated on at the most extreme level by, by the company imploding and it being on my watch after I bought it. That's why I just realized like, Hey, you know, I also, you know, God bless skateboarding and being a pro skateboarder, but as a capitalist and somebody yeah. whose who's true passion is now return on investment and IRR um, <laughs> does not connect with the skateboarding world any longer, you know? And really when I got rid of every single thing in skateboarding from that point on, and eventually then even all of my sponsorships and anything connected. And then the last thing that I owned was street league skateboarding that eventually got acquired when they bought my production company and rolled it into a roll-up. They all got acquired together at the same time. And that was the final business that I ever had that was connected to the sport of skateboarding. Cause I looked at it as like, ultimately that was my past, if you will. And now my future is what I do in business through the deer deck machine. And, and, and that is much more in the line of like how big and fast can we make it and who can we sell it to? You know, it's, it's a, I, there's so many lessons to take away from that. One, you already mentioned it's the credibility factor. And then two, it's, uh, there's a mental factor. Then there's the actual fiscal factor of $4 million being gone too. I have two questions for you with the 4 million bucks that you lost at that point in your life, was that a, a pretty material like amount for you? Or was that just like the $4 million that you lost? The second part question, you gained more lessons about everything you need to do as an investor that it was worth the $4 million, honestly, when you look back at it. Look, I spent so much money in skateboarding. You know, I also wrote and financed the only authentic real skateboarding film, put up $2 million to do that and yeah. couldn't get anybody into the theaters to watch it, lost that money. <laughs> like, you know, I I have like invested so deeply. I, you know, I had my Wild Grinders, like little kid skateboard cartoon on the Nickelodeon cartoon and toys that. and Martell. You know, it's like I never, that never amounted materialized to like capital, right? So, you know, was 4 million a lot, 4 million is a lot to anybody Anybody. right now. You know what I'm saying? So I, I I don't want to downplay, but I also, I had so many multiple revenue streams at that point that it wasn't like I'm, it's a painful one. And it's, and, 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 and it was a significant amount of my money, but I was still making so much money too, that it was like, I was able to like, it wasn't like I just lost a big chunk of my savings yeah. and I was making little, I was making so much money at the time that it was, it was regenerating itself through this L. Sure. Um, and, you know, everybody points to like, oh, the lessons is invaluable. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I have law, lo- I have learned lesson after lesson through millions and millions of dollars of losses, <laughs> right? So like, look, and I don't look back and be like, oh, sick. I lost Sweet. 2 million on that one. And but I could write a point five on that one and 2 million. And like, I am thankful and grateful because I, I have such deeper clarity with money and mm-hmm. what I expect from money in all aspects of my existence, right? I've, I have uh, such a deep understanding of of just money in general. Mm-hmm. And you really can only get there through the fire, right? Yeah, you can learn as much as you can, but nothing sears or hurts as much as like, just being like, why did I do that? Yeah. And like, I should have seen that, 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 you know what I mean? And, I- and you, you can only get there when you go for it. 
You know? But I love, I love that you said nothing sears like when you go through the fire and those learning lessons and that you own it. And then um, your investing companies that don't work out, you have the RIP because so many times today, whether it's like day traders that are on Twitter or, or whatever it is, all we see is the good. We don't see the lessons learned. So many people want to hide from it, not talk about it and bury it. And to own that and be here today to talk about those, to put it out there is just so important for anyone that's developing themselves. One thing you also talked about was your multiple sources of income, which is, is something that is so important. And I want to get to that. Before I do, though, how about the win, the DC United win, investing the royalty back? How did that pay dividends for where you are today and your future with your signature line and, and everything like that? You know, I think it was okay. I mean, you got to yeah. understand, like I the payout, you know, I ended up getting probably a million dollar payout when it sold. Okay. Yeah. But I was making, you know, four or five million dollars a year off royalties from what my signature products um, were selling after Robin Big appeared on MTV. Right. Because you got to understand, you know, I, I've, I've heard you talk a lot about the power of the platform of television. Right. Mm -hmm. And understand that, like, I recognized the power of the platform before it was known as a platform and before I was ever even on TV. Right. So this was 2006. Right. Robin Big was. I, that's what I'm saying. So it, was, it was before really the thing that tipped the scale was Bethany Frankel's like skinny girl Marguerite was like the one that tipped the scale. Right. Sure. Of like, wait a minute, there's, there's a platform for brands. And so this yeah. is what I had in that era. Sure. I saw what, since I had all these signature products, mm -hmm. I saw what was happening at the retail level of the skate shops with Bam Margera's signature products because he was on Jackass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I decided before my television show launched, I renegotiated every single one of my deals for a lower guaranteed money and a higher royalty, betting that if, if this exposure on MTV does what it did for BAM, I'm going to set up the same way for me what it did for BAM. I'm going to generate just massive amounts of royalty, right? So it ha comes out, what happens? It explodes, right? Shows a hit overnight. Huge. DC was acquired for $100 million. Within the first two years of that show, it had reached $500 million in sales, right? Wow. That is how big that platform had scaled that. Now, you know, again, it's like now I have all this signature product that I'm making way more than I did even in the payout of the acquisition, right? Sure. So, okay, so then what happens? Then... Like I'm, you know, using Robin Big, I launched Rogue Status with with Travis Barker. I I do this massive deal with Monster Energy to put yeah. like Monster in the house, like all this stuff, right? So now I'm just using this platform to build businesses, right? So then we did the three seasons and we decided not to do Robin Big anymore. And they asked me to do another show. And so then when I sold them Fantasy Factory, I've sold the show around it being around my businesses. Right, right. And then I, I would only do the show if I owned the integration. And so because there was a little pushback starting to happen, then they, they gave me my integration. So now I sold deals to Chevy, Microsoft. Like I sold all my own deals that I wrote episodes around in the television show, you know, breaking world records, jumping, you know, um, 
Chevy cars, 90 feet back to back, backwards, back, backwards, ramp to ramp. You know, I did the Super Bowl commercial of flipping the Chevy. Pursued uh, your sister to to get engaged in no time. Yeah, you know what I mean? Doing all, but I did all of that by owning that. Now I owned that platform. So now not only was I like the height, you know, because even, even back then I was making 125,000 an episode, which is pretty unprecedented from, from a talent fee perspective. Sure. But I was making millions because I owned the platform. I could sell it to anybody, right? So again, this was before television like understood that people could use their media and their platform to monetize it beyond advertising. It was before before branded integration existed. And I was able to get it in paper because I saw the value before they could catch it. And they just wanted, they just wanted my show on the air. We'll pay you all this money and give you that. But it was again seen just around the corner to be able to then go and capitalize on that to to create the amount of revenue that I built off of that show is, is unprecedented probably in television. It's it's unbelievable because I want to give people perspective on timing. I view, the viewers are a little bit younger here. So the time, 2006 guys, we're talking like three, four years after the, the show The Bachelor comes out. So this is before any social media has really come to fruition at all. Anybody's doing these deals. And so what Rob's saying is before his first TV show, he was actually proactively negotiating all of his deals so he was receiving less cash and getting higher royalties so that when he did have this launch pad, which it sounds like, I was going to ask you why you did reality TV Robin Big in the first place. I now have my answer, which makes perfect sense. It was another platform for you to build your brands at a higher level. But my question is you do Robin Big and it blows up and you're getting paid well. Everybody wants to be on TV. And no, not everybody's a Rob Deerdeck. That's for damn sure. But how are you yourself sitting there negotiating with a network as big as MTV asking them for actual ownership. Like how did that work? Because if you ever, if anyone tried to do that today to go on a reality show or to be a host or anything like that, to actually get ownership in the show is it's unprecedented. It doesn't even do it justice. So how, what was that process like? How did you actually get that deal done? I mean, look, I, I think it's, it's the age old, the, the gift of leverage. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just yeah. the reality, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you got to keep in mind, like I, Robin Big aired, I was 32 years old. You know okay. what I mean? It wasn't like I was like 22. You know what I mean? Sure. I had evolved pretty significantly. I was looking at it as a platform. I had, I then like saw what I had got from the platform. I knew how bad they wanted me to do a show. Mm-hmm. Like they were offering, you know, at the time, you know, I was probably getting 35,000 an episode okay. of Robin Big and they offered me 125,000 an episode to do a four season of Robin Big or do another show. Right. And to me, I also was 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 being cautious with my personal brand, too. Right. Of knowing that, like, okay, if you can go and do the next thing like and you can I knew how focused I was on business and how business was really more about uh, sort of my personal brand and how beyond just being a pro skateboarder I was like. So I took the risk of doing the other show and and just was in a position to know like, here's with this leverage, here's these other things that I want. Because you got to think at the time, I, I didn't like how hard reality show shooting is, right? And, yeah. and you'll know this where you, you know, yeah. you've, you got, you're out in the field all day to shoot something for like 20 minutes, Ten then seconds. like, oh, we got to shoot it again, you know, whatever, like that, like grind. 
um, was just something that was, was, was something I really, really didn't like. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's when I originally sold them ridiculousness during the third season of Robin big. Like I read an article with Vinnie DeBona about the $500 million syndication business of America's funniest home videos. And I was like, you want to know what I'm going to make the faster, cooler version of that. And that's all we did. When we did the first pitch, we just took America's Funniest Home Videos, took out all the fat, and then I stood in there with the pitch with an Xbox controller and like did almost like the version where I was rewinding and looking this, and we put them in little packages, like a, a mini version of really what it evolved to and became today. But the problem was they bought it on the spot. But the pro and I I wanted that because it's like I want to go to a studio. I don't want this to be shot in my house. Sure. I don't want to have to be out in the field. Yeah. But they would only pay me thirty five thousand an episode to do ridiculousness, and then they offered me the one twenty five. And then when I got the integration rights, mm -hmm. then I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna do this because I can just make millions from doing this, and this is sure. a a a much bigger sort of platform. Then a couple years later, they're like, can we do this? this one again and then uh i was able to get way more money based off of the success of of what had happened with fantasy factory and now this would be my third show with them rob when you you just said integration rights and i understand what that means but someone might be saying okay thirty-five thousand an episode one twenty-five thousand episode now rob's saying this integration rights and he's making millions can you explain to someone that might not know what integration rights are like what that means exactly yeah, and integration is ultimately, you know, if there's an, an hour-long show, a half-hour-long show, like nobody actually, and when they say integration, it means product can be put inside the show, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of times in the past, it would be a Coca-Cola cup on the American Idol judge's counter, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it became inauthentic, right? And, and really what I did that was unprecedented, since I wrote every episode and completely produced and controlled the show, I could now write entire storylines around businesses and products and companies I'm creating and, and partnerships that I would do. So basically every episode was an integrated story around either a company that I owned or a company that I did a partnership for to be in the show, right? Yeah. And I mean, just non-existent, doesn't exist. And, and even then the beauty of it, since I controlled so much of it and I had basically free reign to do whatever I wanted, right? That it allowed me to create any storyline for any brand. And then I could go and pitch brands of like, this is, this is the type of story I'd like to do. And, you know, and I, and, and look, that is Carl's Jr. Microsoft. Like, man, we even did it. We did one of the funniest episodes. We did a mega integration deal with extends right? <laughs> and and we for big black and big black it was like you can never be too big right it was like the like funniest like you know and since like we had total control mm -hmm. on the creative side that we were able to just do deals with just about anybody right so it's a super super unique and it's one of those things that like not even the world very i very rarely get into it at depth Right. Yeah. And and most people don't fully understand like the depth of control that I have actually had from a business side on all of my television, including ultimately, you know, building ridiculousness into this, you know, 
juggernaut for a production company that I eventually went and sold. Right. It's like yeah. even, even the sequence of, of God bless MTV an extraordinary partnership. Uh, but I have been able to monetize it at such an extraordinary scale because I've approached it with a business mindset and a creative way of using leverage and deal making all the way through to maximize the potential of what I could earn from just being talent on a television show. You know? And there is, just for anyone that's listening, I'm telling you, it's unbelievable that not only were you able to do it, but you were able to negotiate a deal that you could also add such value organically. Like who wouldn't want to watch an episode with you and Big Black talk about extents? Who it's like a commercial you die to see. Like you can't wait to see. It's 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 absolutely fascinating and brilliant. But then the question is: I understand obviously the placement and the, and how you would get some of the ads there. When these shows would sell, you obviously had ownership of the shows too, correct? You know, you have a little bit of back end, but not okay. significantly. Right. Okay. Like nobody in cable has any any big back end that's relevant. Right. Because okay. it's like cable doesn't quite work like network. Yeah. So really, you're basically playing the game for a small back end and then your your talent free fee on the upfront. Right. Then I realized like, OK, well, where's another way to actually make and build an asset inside this unfair advantage that I have that is television. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with the production company, right? So yep. where, where the actual opportunity is, is then owning the production rights and then building out the infrastructure of finishing and producing and editing and trying to get a, a nice margin from your production because production companies trade on EBITDA, right? Yep, and at the yep. end of the day, uh, it's a still creative services, but even when I, you know, to give you context of how I approach that is in order to build to sell a production company, you needed three years of EBITDA, right? Is so this super I'm, jacket you're talking about? Yeah. The production yeah. company. Okay. Three years. You know, but the problem with, with production companies is television shows get picked up a couple months after the airing of the final episode. Right. It's very right. rare that multiple seasons of shows get picked up. Sure. And so when I I had built the production company before we took it to market, I renegotiated with the network. Like I just went straight to the network and was like with the head of the network and renegotiated the entire show on the unit economics of the show. Because I knew that like cable was evolving, viewership was evolving, and I wanted a big order that I could take to market when I sold the company. So I could say like, hey, not only is it is it doing this well, but I got it guaranteed for a long time. And we, and, and God bless them, since I owned the production company and now could negotiate, not on a talent fee, but on the unit economics of their ad dollars to the value that they're paying to produce that show, we negotiated to that. And then they ordered, instead of ordering 30 at a time, they now order 186 at a time and eventually started ordering 250 at a time, right? But that big 186 episode order, the moment I signed the paper, I took the, the company to market to sell it because I wanted to be like, here's here's how, how fast it's growing. And then look at this, look at, I have a sell story now yeah. of like, and I have this guaranteed revenue, no production companies ever had anything like this and then sold the company behind that, right? This, like, it's and, so and again, brilliant. And it's again now, and again now, you got to map that out, right? You got to learn that, you got to understand that. Then you have to take the shot 
to be like, hey, let's negotiate on unit economics rather than talent fees and show costs. Let's try to get it into like, what's good for you can be good for me. This is what I need it for. They knew that I wanted to sell the production company. They were like, okay, well, if you can give it to us for this, we'll do this. And then, and then went through the process, right? But again, squeezing like water out of a rock. You're maximizing <laughs> your opportunity at a scale that, that again, in television, as talent, I'm just a host to everybody else, is unprecedented. Unprecedented is an understatement. And it's, and people that are listening, they're like, listen, I'm not intelligent. I'm not Rob. I never will. There are lessons here, though, you can apply to your life. Squeezing water out of a rock is a perfect way to say it and creating a roadmap. Basically, if, if for those that are, that are more accelerated, that understood every word Rob said, take those lessons and run with them. For those that might have been a little confused on some of the strategy, the most simple version that I could think of to explain it is like if it's a law professor who knows he has to teach a class and he knows he's going to get paid by the university anyway, well, he might as well write his book because every student needs a book and therefore he's selling his book at his equity and he could see how many students he'll have and project his revenue, et cetera. Rob pretty much created a production company that these shows needed, and then he could negotiate on both sides of the equation with more information. Unprecedented, again, is, is an understatement, and uh, it's so savvy. Let me also say this, and this is the biggest lesson in it, is lean into your unfair advantage that leads to revenue, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I, I, I started at the end. I built the number that I wanted to sell that production company for, right? And how many in the years that it would take me to get there, three years to get it to market, right? And, yep. and everything that I needed to do. But I didn't have to go out and raise capital and find partners. Since I had the unfair advantage of an existing television, the only thing I needed to do was to negotiate with the network to get the production rights, right? So, and then now my company immediately immediately goes from doing a hundred grand in revenue to 50 million in like two meetings. Right. So like, it, it's just, I leaned in and it's also why like in, you know, we're in the middle of the earnout and the earnout scaling. And if I really laid, laid out how I even built the earnout, it's, it's psychotic unto itself, but <laughs> it's a, like the, it's also why I own 70% at acquisition. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of people fall in love with two things, starting a company or an idea, and then one day someone buying it, right? right? right. And getting investors and raising money. But the mm -hmm. truth is, in between there is this, this hellish road of dilution. If you are not like growing properly, if you are not like, like hitting your revenue goals, not, not like, you know, creating enough value to where your capital is just used to grow the business instead of to keep, to try to figure out how to get the business to work. Mm -hmm. Because at, at the end of the day, it is, how much equity you have when the business is sustainable and profitable is, is where you win or lose in the game, you know, Correct. in entrepreneurship, especially Correct. if you want to play the game of raising money, which again is a nightmare. And if I look at the weak companies in my portfolio, I can, I can literally, there's one through line through it all because I just love people. I look for like their, initially when I, when I launched all the in, initial businesses, I was looking for the do or die, like grit, yeah. determination, fortitude, ambition, relentless work ethic, unwavering self-belief and their ability to control their destiny. This like 
fire. That's who I want to like build with. But the problem is, is I built with so many people that had bad founder market fit. They didn't have the right experience. They haven't like grown into this opportunity. They were entrepreneurs who looked at this industry as like, I should make money. I could take my skill set and try to apply it to this industry. But industries have everybody from every industry will tell you like, oh, I wish I was in that industry, right? Like there's always Mm -hmm. some sort of problem with everything, but you can accelerate your opportunity to success with having great experience in a particular industry. That's probably the biggest lesson that I learned in my my 2016 to 18 vintages of companies that I built in that era. You know, the reality of business is it is thrilling and amazing if it works. If it does not work, (laughs) it it is literally the worst worst nightmare. Like you are pulling your soul apart. Like what is happening? It It is just everything about it. And so for me, you know, it's important. This refinement, this is personal mastery. My personal mastery in life is getting better and better year after year at curating ideas, markets, and individuals and building them into sustainable, acquirable businesses. So when I look at all the companies I launched in 16, I I know that like I would never do any of them the way that I build in 2021. The same way in 2026, I'll be like, look at all the way I was looking at things in 2021. And it's the beauty of when you point your mastery at the core of what your business is and ultimately what your legacy will become, right? Mm -hmm. And and because the truth is, is beyond the same way how you were like, man, I don't even know really how to like put you into like, what is your career? Because you've done so many things. I know the same way that I've been building the backbone of this and just recently launched it at this scale this year, that it will be ultimately what I'm known for way beyond skateboarding and ridiculousness and Fantasy Factory and Robin Big through the years is really sort of that evolution of pointing your mastery at a specific thing. That's really cool. And I mean, a legacy is, in my opinion, and something I talk about all the time. It is the greatest thing I think in the world that will all supersede any of us, right? In a hundred years from now, we're, we're not here. You know, what are you doing today that can still live on and still make an impact? I think that to, to think like that is just incredible. Rob, this has been uh, unbelievable to say the least. We're going to wrap up here with a couple of uh, rapid questions just to learn a little bit about you and some of your thoughts. And then we'll end with one trading secret. And trust me when I tell you, we could easily cut one of the segments out here and make it your trading secret, trading secret. But the idea is, you know, if someone's Googling, you know, Rob or listen to you on a show or something else, what is a secret you could give someone as they're pursuing personal finance or career navigation or just maybe stuck in life that they couldn't find anywhere? So before we do that, we're going to crack into the vault with a couple rapid fire questions if you're ready. Hit me. Rob, Deirdre, here we go. Are you a fan of cryptocurrency NFTs and would you invest in them? I believe blockchain is the future, right? I think smart contracts and and blockchain is undeniable. I think that cryptocurrency and challenging currency is a much more complex sort of thing, but the the fundamentals of blockchain is undeniable as it relates to sort of being what I would consider the next internet. So I invest in with really really sophisticated crypto fund managers, right? So rather than trying to be on Coinbase, trying to buy Ethereum and 
guess when Bitcoin's going to come back down and all these Doge coins and, yeah. and chase the <laughs> chase the get rich quick. I'm really betting on really really smart fund managers that th- see the long term infrastructure of blockchain. Mm-hmm. That's where I've, I've put a significant amount of money. Yeah, outsource to the experts, and I, I completely agree with you. Blockchain is it. It's the future. All right, I, I, this is one we did before the podcast. I think I know the answer. Did you make more money in the pro athlete space? or after launching into the TV, reality TV space? Oh, I mean, it's not yeah. even like a We question. know that you answer. Know I mean? We Look, don't I, even I don't, have to answer it. Yeah, I mean, and for the amount of years and and the, the little amount of capital, but, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's incomparable, really, though, when I truly combined the power of television and business together is mm-hmm. where... Uh, you know, the wouldn't even couldn't even compare it to what I made as an athlete. You know, I love it. All right, health, wealth, and happiness—three really important things. I read an article. It could be bullshit, but I read it that you meditate in a fifteen thousand dollar dome. Is that true or false? That is a hundred percent true. You and know, can and, you just give me a little context about what that is, like how that I, works? I, I mean, look, I'm you know, to me, I believe that you you have to get extraordinarily clear on what you want the outcomes of your life to be, right? I think then you have to um, really understand who you are, um, how you want to live, and and ultimately what you want to do, and then design the life that you want to live. Now, I've done that, right? I have this extraordinary clarity, deep peace, total balance, and then I use this meditation pod and I go through a 20 minute guided meditation on just manifestation. And every morning I get in at five in the morning and I just visualize feeling all of these things that I want to experience in the future. Because I ultimately believe your body knows no difference as the great Dr. Joe Dispenza will tell you on, on whether or not it's real or not. So I go in and experience all of these things I want to have to basically have the universe pull these to me. And then what happens? All of these extraordinary things in my life have continually evolved to happen as I visualize them inside that dome. And you're doing this every day at five in the morning. Yeah. I mean, look, you're, you're talking about one of the most disciplined, you know, I track every day how I feel zero to 10 about my life, health, and work, right? Qualitative data. And when you collect qualitative data every day, zero to 10, you begin to see, you you get qualitative awareness, as I say, where the same things pop up that bring you down. Then you begin to clear those out. You do that for years, you become almost weightless, right? And now you're only dealing with sort of self-inflicted Uh, sort of new things, not institutional stress, right? And then, so I have that data for since 2014 that I've done every day. And then every single day, I have the quantitative data that I gamify my discipline. It's like, did I get up at five? Did I meditate? Did I get in the gym? Did I brain train? Did I have a clean diet? Did I not drink, right? That core, and I track it every single day. And then now I've gamified it. And so my average so far this year of the of the qualitative, I've done it 87% of the entire year, meaning I have done all five of those almost every single day, even when I'm on vacation, even in through the holidays, through everything, through a half a year 
I have gamified my discipline. Now, when you look at those together and you ladder that up to my qualitative number, you will find the more disciplined you are in those key aspects, the higher quality of life that you ultimately have from a qualitative feel. Like, how sure. do you actually feel? Sure, how do you feel? So yeah, I'm, it's a it's that a different level. Unbelievable. I, have, have you written a book? No, and I, I will eventually, right? Like this it's, all needs to be in your book. Yeah, and, and look, I'm gonna I'll share with you sort of all my data and how it looks like, so you can see it's, it's amazing because you're gamifying. It's a game to be sure. disciplined, and the the benefits that you reap is just like extraordinary. Now, behind that, I like to refer to myself as an automationist, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, I basically have built all these systems to allow my entire life to to be this giant machine, right? Mm -hmm. And to give you context of how automated, I shoot 250 episodes of television a year, and I track every day all of my time and every hour of the day is tracked and has a tag and it pumps into a dashboard of how exactly I've spent my time. And I live a perfectly balanced life where I spend 32% of my time sleeping, 32% of the time working and about 30% with my family and wife, right? Mm -hmm. And friends to the fully balanced by design life. But of that 250 episodes a year in television is 4% of my total time for the year. Wow. To, to give you context to how, how extraordinarily automated and systematized that I've created and built the television show and still doing it at that scale at this point. You know what I mean? Wow. All right. I, it is absolutely mind-blowing, the <laughs> thought process that goes into it. Uh, the day-to-day -day routine, but then the end result of it. I'm blown away. I could talk to you forever about this, but I know we're on a time constraint. So, wow, that is amazing. I got to ask you this follow-up. Have you, do you, have you noticed since tracking this that your time deployed in the places you want it to be deployed in has increased and your overall qualitative feeling of, I guess, good or well-being has also increased as you've tracked this? 100% because you now just understand when you're asking yourself, how do I feel about work today? Yeah. Zero to 10. When it's below a four, when it's a four, half empty. And then you want to know what you feel like in half empty? It's binary. You're like, I should have never even, why did I buy that car? Why did I even start this podcast? What am I even doing? Like when you go to half empty versus when you're at a six, you're half full. Hey, it, you're hopeful. Anything can push. And then you're neutral. You're like complacent, right? And yeah. if you can imagine over time, you begin to optimize all aspects of your existence. And that mm -hmm. also optimizes all aspects of your time. Because by using that quality, you begin to shape your existence into a place where you almost you, you're so sensitive now to how you spend your time that the moment you overcommit to something, it's so clear that it's that it's pushing on your quality. Mm -hmm. And it's not heavy, but you feel it enough to where then you make the adjustment and, and you have options, right? You can either automate it, right? When you're building something new, you can hire somebody to do an aspect of it mm -hmm. or you quit it. And when, you, when you're working through life like that, you just always live in this sort of state of flow and energy, right? Yeah. And then you're super, it's so easy to say no to things and not get caught in, in committing to things that pull from you because you're so sensitive to it after clearing it out for so much time. 
I've preached it for years. No one I know has ever actually committed to doing it besides me that I know of. You know what I mean? It's a very difficult commitment. Here's what I'm going to commit to because I'm about small wins and building up momentum. I'm going to commit to doing this once a week because I think it's absolutely brilliant. I do like the idea of gamifying your happiness. I've never pulled the plug on the rapid fire and the trading secret, but I'm going to pull the plug. We're going to stop the rapid fire. We're going to call this the trading secret because it's unbelievable. Gamifying your happiness since inception of like being born, at least for me, the first time I could, you know, touch a toy or do anything, it was all about games, playing hockey, playing soccer or whatever, video games, everything's a game. And to me, that's it's exciting. It's entertaining. And like you said, it, it makes you want to continue to like be better and thinking about gamifying the most important thing in, in the world, in my opinion, is, you know, health and, and happiness and, and time allocated. What else do you have? Makes perfect sense. And I don't know why more of us do it. So, I'm going to give that a shot. Rob, that was a hell of a trading secret, and I didn't even put you on, on the point to do it. Uh, before, you know, very thankful, and I'll get into that in a second, but before I do get into that, everything you have going on, people are going to listen to this and want as much of you as they can get. Where can they find you in social media, your podcast, the name of it, and the forums they could find it, and anything else you have going on? Yeah, you know, podcasts everywhere where podcasts are found. Uh, DeirdrickMachine.com is basically the hub of, of all uh, things to do with the Venture Creation Studio and ultimately all the stuff that I'm creating. And, and you know, I, I try to, uh, you know, push a, a little bit of my life and, and business through social media, but social media is hard. But for the most part, you can find me on all platforms at Rob Deirdeck. And really, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, all of this stuff ultimately is is what I love to do the most, mm -hmm. right? And and that's what I really evolved in. But in doing inside that, what I actually love to do the most, and one of those is you know being able to have a real conversation with somebody that uh, is smart, understands it, and I can share with them, mm -hmm. and it, it have some meaning. Uh, so I appreciate the great conversation as well today. Good stuff, Rob. We really appreciate you coming on, Rob Deerdeck. We always say that. Uh, hopefully this is an episode you can't afford to miss. I can promise this is an episode you can't afford to miss. This is one I'll be going back, Rob, no joke, with a pen and paper, computer up. I want to implement this system. I'm going to follow up the next podcast after this with how the system goes. And I can't tell you how much uh, we appreciate your time, especially knowing that only 4% of your time on an annual basis goes to MTV shooting. So we, we really appreciate you coming out. Thanks for having me. Ding, ding, ding. We are back ringing in the closing bell on the Rob Deerdeck episode with David and Jason. Again, this is where we break down and recap our guest. And David is the voice of the viewer, the curious Canadian, the one and only who will get my take on everything we just discussed. Now, in this episode, you'll notice I didn't do my typical intro where it's usually five minutes and I break down the details of Rob. Why didn't I do that? Because Rob and I had such a long episode and he gave us so many details. I felt that it made sense just to get right into the action with him. And speaking of being right in the action, we have a Restart All Access membership. You can come on live to these podcasts when I'm talking to Rob and all these people that we're interviewing. We have Gary V coming up. You can ask questions. And in the rapid refire, I will always state your name, your Instagram handle, etc. So check out the Restart All Access membership. You can email us restart at jasontardic.com or just go to our Instagram and we will get you all taken care of for less than 30 cents a day. Now, getting into the Rob podcast, 
I will say this, David, and I want to kick it to you because uh, I know you told me a few times your jaw hurt by how many times you dropped in this episode. But I'm going to say this and go on record. Top three smartest humans I've ever spoken to in my entire life. In my entire life. I mean, you texted me right away and I've never seen you so like flustered over words being like, so many things. Um, and you said that, like, I know the podcast was long and the interview was long, but you said you guys went on like an absolute run off camera, which we're gonna, I want to get into later. Um, but yeah, my jaw was dropped and it's just that surreal feeling sometimes when you're talking to someone that you've seen on TV and you're like, wait, they're talking to me. Oh my God. I got to answer. Oh my God. Like this is fascinating. And he's incredible an incredible, incredible human being. Yeah, exactly. And the thing too is that when I say it, I wasn't even the TV thing. It's just the thing, like the 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 stuff he does, the money he's made, and the way he's negotiated this contract. And the word we used a lot was unprecedented. That again doesn't do it justice. Like it's crazy what he's been able to do and leverage with the talent he has. So, and and I'll tell you, whatever you want to talk about, David. In this recap, you asked me about what happened when we stopped recording, and I'm going to unleash. But I'm going to follow your lead, brother. Well, it was like the guy clearly is like the definition of the saying like chess instead of checkers. Like the mm-hmm. guy is playing mm-hmm. chess where all of us are trying to figure it out on, out on the other end. But he's just like, is it possible to just be that cool without even trying? Like his yeah. voice was so soothing. I was almost like, I, I listened to it for the first time at like 11 PM last night. And I was like, Ooh, this could like, you know, I, this is like soothing. Like this is relaxing. <laughs> I felt like I was in his $15,000 uh, meditation spot. You know what I was dying at is like when I would like, you know, I get hyped up and I'm like, so dude, you're telling me that, you know, like that's me. And then he's like, listen, man, like, nah, yeah, it's not quite that sexy. You're cool. He's like, listen, I'm just like, I, I loved so how he's like, I appreciate you having me teeing me up to make philosophize like my journey. But yeah, it started. So he was, he was awesome. So quickly before we get into some business stuff for the podcast, uh, I didn't know that Rob is a massive Bachelor super fan. He said he's never missed an episode of Par- Bachelor, Bachelorette, or Paradise. I had no idea about that either. I mean, you heard him say in the beginning, we DM'd him three months ago to try and get him on, and he didn't respond. When he responded, I was I was like, "There's no." It was right after your bachelor party, and I was obviously a little foggy. I'm like, "Am I re- like this guy really respond? Like, he wants to come on, no fucking way." So I immediately I get my team. I'm like, "Get him booked. Let's go. Get him on the fucking calendar." So yeah, man, I didn't know that. How did it feel to be on the big screen again yesterday? I felt like felt like I was back in my natural habitat watching oh. my boy JT on TV. Yeah, back on the Bachelorette. You know what? It always yeah, I got a funny behind the scenes thing. There's this thing. Okay, God, we're getting the bachelor talk, but it's called this whoa whoa challenge. So you're not supposed to. She said the guys can't whack off before the fantasy suites. So when she sat down, we got like she brought it up before she brought out Connor and like Kayla. We were getting. We probably had a. 20 minute conversation all about whacking off <laughs> literally like i'm sweating i'm like oh no they're gonna air this my mom's gonna watch it shit they did it they cut it thank god yeah you send us like a snapchat or something like sick grill job jay put the burger on the hot dogs yeah like what was i doing and dude you know you've been on, on becca's season uh for anyone that doesn't know the, the, uh, becca surprised me with three of my best buddies David being one of them. So you actually got to like be part of that experience and you realize like putting the burger on the hot dog, you would never do in real life, but kind of like the pressure, you're like not thinking right and you do shit like that and they always catch it. Always. It was uh, that surprise we were talking about the other day. It was just a surreal, surreal 
experience for us to have and catch on film and, and such a natural organic um awesome experience so yeah yeah that know. show is wild and it it's captivating to say the least couple things like i'm i'm listening to this podcast and i'm like rob you're my guy finally one i feel like i'm in tune to he says a quote he goes you know, I was making 50 to 60 K and now I'm going to 50 K and you're learning the big boy lessons. And I feel like he was like talking to me. He's like, you're uneducated. You have no financial background. You know, nothing <laughs> about investing, you know, nothing about taxes. And I was like, Hey, damn it. Like I might not be in this. And then he said a line. And I was like, okay, this is going to my notes section. Got to ask Jason about it. He said, EBITDA. <laughs> so oh, you said it right. I spelt it wrong in the recap. Okay. Notes, but I said EBITDA. I, what is EBITDA? I know it's something I probably should know, and you're probably going to say it. I know it's like earnings for something, but I don't know what it means. So kind of like all the awesome examples you've used with like the BMW car for the shorts and all these things, what is EBITDA and how does it relate to business? Okay. Uh, Great question. Funny thing about EBITDA is in the world of finance, it's so funny how some people will say words like that with different tones. Like some people will say finance or finance or EBITDA, or they'll say EBITDA. Like they'll have all these different ways of how they say EBITDA. Um, and it's just like such a joke. Like we, I would always laugh at it. But essentially what it is, is it's it's six letters, right? E-B-I-T-D-A. The idea of it is it's the earnings of a company before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Here's what I want people to think about. If you own a business, right? And let's say you're selling cups of coffee and you do a million dollars in sales by selling coffee. What you're going to do is you're going to have expenses that are non-cash expenses that will reduce how much you have to actually pay in taxes. Okay. So things that you will do is you will reduce that revenue by these expenses and that'll be your net income. The problem is when you're really trying to get an understanding of a company's overall financial performance, you don't want to just look at the net income. You will look at what's called EBITDA. And it's their earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. The whole idea is that taxes, depreciation, amortization are what an interest are things that you can add back to earnings to really show the company's overall financial performance. All right. Well, that makes perfect sense. It gives kind of people a clear idea of, of what a company actually makes. So that's helpful. Yeah. There you go. A little breakdown on EBITDA. 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 Yeah. Uh, he also talked about um, how he got successful in one of his first ventures in the company because I think it was DC Shoes, which I always, by the way, thought my whole life was the Deer Deck Company. I thought that's what DC ah, stood for. Interesting. I had DC Shoes growing up, like 16-year-old didn't skateboard. And I was like, yeah, I'd probably wear like a puka shell net- necklace too. Real quick though, wasn't that interesting how he said that? And I want to hear your question for sure, but how so many people for DC Shoes actually don't skateboard. They just wanted to wear the shoes. That's so many businesses. But it's like guys who wear like LeBron shoes. or Sure. And, and they're not basketball. basketball. Makes yeah. sense. But he, he brought up an example where he, he got royalties from a company, that company, and instead of taking the royalties, they got reinvested in equity or cash in the business. So if you had gun to your head, a company XYZ came up to you and said, I'm going to give you a cash option in our business or a royalty option in our business, what are you choosing and why? I mean, it depends on my financial position and how badly I need cash at this point. Definitely would take the royalties. And just like 
Uh, any company that has a stock, like if you guys have a stock and it's paying a dividend, so that means they'll actually pay you money for owning the stock, a percentage. It, don't take that cash, reinvest that dividend back into the stock. So huge royalty guy. And where do we learn that, David? The one and only Mr. Wonderful. He's the man. Uh, he also asked Rob, uh, Rob about his losses and he he kind of loved the question as well. So I'm going to turn the table and, and talk to you. Uh, you've told me about some of the stock losses that you've had in your life. Uh, why don't you give the shed some light on some of the losses that you've had? Because uh, we always talk about our success stories here. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. I think uh, let's do some relevant losses I've had. Um, one relevant loss is, and it's not actually loss, it's a win, Dogecoin. I actually bought in. I bought in around like the 16, 17 cent mark. I, I thought the SNL thing was a fucking joke. So at like 40, it went up to 46. I'm like, I'm getting out of this before the disaster. Obviously, it doubled, right? It literally doubled from that point. So I, you know, I could have had much bigger upside. But an actual loss is there's a company called uh, T. Their their ticker is T K A T. Big in the NFT space, you know. Did my research. Uh, felt good about the company. I mean, small market cap. And it was a definitely high risk, but the 52 week high on this stock is 75 bucks around. 52 week lows around 77 cents. I got in at $36.70. And I got in not too long ago, probably, I don't know, two months ago, two, two months ago. My average cost to get in this stock was $36.70. It's trading today at $7.83. Fortunately, I didn't go all in on this, but I would say if I sold right now, I got about a $28,000 loss I can write off. Okay. 28k just like that Gone. now dodge not 4 million <laughs> dodge dodge coins at uh 18 cents right now that's another one is it dodge is it doge is it doji i've heard of you know doji okay tell me your story i sold half a bitcoin when it was like i had a full bitcoin and then when it went down from like 19 to 9 i sold half of it for some altcoins okay. neo in particular and it's not even i've probably lost i probably lost $25,000 on that trade alone so you sold one Bitcoin at 9K? Half a Bitcoin. So at night, when it was okay. the total value, oh. was so 4,500, I bought $4,500 yeah. worth of NEO. The NEO now today, the four, what at the time was $4,500 worth of Bitcoin into NEO. The NEO is now worth like uh, like a thousand bucks. And the upside of Bitcoin would have been, ah, uh, we suck. With wins, there's losses. And those are our losses. Quickly, move on, move on. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to bring up what we talked about earlier. You mentioned uh, you guys went into the weeds a little bit after. And I think I know, I mean, I hope I know what it's about. I think it's about a little bit of his system that he, that he talked about, kind of gamifying his discipline and his life and trying to get some more clarity. And he said a quote that stuck out to me. And I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to allow you to get into what you talked about. But he said, I want it extraordinarily clear on what you want the outcomes of your life to be. Mm -hmm. Such a powerful statement that's like, uh, let me sit and think about what he means by this. And it makes a lot of sense, but how he does it is extraordinary in itself. So what'd you guys talk about? What were your takeaways? And what can we just kind of banter about? I am so frustrated we st still weren't recording, but I went because obviously he talks about how he gamifies his life. So I'm like, tell me about it. So we stopped recording. He showed me what he does every day for six years. He has this Excel file that has been created by a consulting company and he gives certain things of his uh, life a number. So did he drink that day? Did he work out that day? 
what's like his overall satisfaction in life, all one through 10. He oh, even so those has are all one through 10. So did all I work out 10? Didn't it's a zero. If he did, it's like, it might be a four workout. Like I just did abs. It's like a 10, like I crush in the gym. So it's like that level. Yeah. Well, it's it, it, for him. It's actually for those, those are yes, no, they're binary. So did he work out? Yes. Um, did he drink? Yes or no. And then he would have uh, other numbers about his overall satisfaction in his life and his health and everything, his mental health. And he even has one with his wife. What is his connection with his wife? And so he has the percentages, like in January, I think I remember saying like, it was a hundred percent of the hundred percent of the month he worked out and didn't drink. And like, so he has this all documented every morning, his assistant, and he showed me, his assistant will give him like to the T hot, what his schedule looks like. He then forwards the schedule to his wife with a quote that he loves, like about her, like a love quote. And in return, she has to send him back. It's all he asks for is a number of how connected she feels with him. One through 10. And so like when he showed me, there's some days there was like four, some days there were like seven or eight or nine. And what he can do is over the six years, he can try and draw correlations. Like, is my drinking impacting the connection with my wife? Is my work balance in, uh, you know, impacting the connection with my wife? And he has all these takeaways based on the quantitative and qualitative numbers. And then he separates his schedule into, oh man, I don't, I'm, I'm breaking it. It's like health, love, and work, but he has different things. And he showed me a schedule. And each thing before what he's doing will say like, this is work, this is love. And he has time blocked out for his wife. Like it's like seven to 9 p.m. And he's like, nothing comes. Like that's my wife time. And he has kid time blocked up. No phone, no nothing. That's my kid time. So organized. And every day, oh, wait, wait, I gotta tell you this part. His business plan that I'm done. His business, because I could talk about this whole podcast. His business plan, every three months, he updates it. He showed us. He has a three-month plan, a one-year plan, a two-year plan, a five-year plan. Guess how long? Give me a number. How long? How many years do you think his plan goes out? One year, two year, three year. If it's anything more than like five, because everyone's like, what are you going to do in five years? Five years. It's a five-year plan. So five would be like, I would assume the, the, the norm. David, he has a 500-year plan. 500 years. My jaw hit the ground. I said, I said Rob, what, what do you mean? He goes, I'll be dead in the dirt. But it is my job. I want to have at least a billion dollars in liquidity for my family that when anybody is born a deer deck, I don't care about like royalty. Like uh, uh, what, I, what you want to know is that your life will be in harmony. You will be a happy individual. You will live peaceful. 500 year plan. How, how do you take that? Like I heard, I listened to the podcast. I heard, I'm hearing you talk about it. How does normal David... And do I have to just call myself normal, David? Or can I adopt this myself? I guess, I, I feel like I can, right? I think everyone should have some type, my takeaway from this is that everyone should have some type of system that keeps them in check and that gamifies their life a little bit because we all love games. Everyone loves games. How you could do it simply, I'll give you an example. I talked to the Capital One interns. I suggested they do something like this because of the, and I gave Rob the credit because of what I learned from him. I said, for the Capital One interns, do every day three things. Write the value you brought today. How good were you? Give me a number one through 10 of how good Capital One was to you. So how good were you to them? How good was Capital One to you? Give me your internship satisfaction in a couple notes. Do it every day and you're going to be able to change your input based on the numbers you're seeing. I think we could simplify what he's doing. If you had to pick, and, and we'll go back and forth on this, if you had to pick five things to quantify like if you are leading a good life in terms of your personal happiness and your relationship that are important to Jason Tardick, what are five things that 
you know if you're doing or you're not doing it's probably going to affect the quality of your life. Yeah, I think I think connection with a loved one is brilliant, right? That will impact my happiness in my life. I think uh, time spent with my family and friends is a big, like how connected do I feel to my partner? How connected do I feel to my family and friends? Drinking is a big one. I love to drink. I love to socially drink. Managing that is huge. Working out's a big one. And just how, I think the one for work I would do is how was one through 10, was I my best self today? And I, I do, there's no such thing as silos. Personal life bleeds into work life. And if those four things, those are my foundation, my family, my friends, my partner, and my health. If those aren't lined up, I promise you, I would like to see it. My production's probably down. Here's my five. Let's hear it. I would quantify how much I'm on my phone. Okay. Because I know it affects my relationship. But could you also say that being on your phone connects you with those like, like you and I? Which I'll, okay, I, I'm done. I want to hear it all five. I definitely take advantage of that too, because I love talking to my friends and my family, but I also, I, I need to be, I need to, you know, 10 PM, 11 PM, whatever. Turn it so up. I would quantify how much I'm on my phone. Okay. I would definitely do uh, working out because I'm okay. just a better human being when I work out. I would do how healthy did I eat, eat on a scale of one to 10. And then I think my last two would be definitely prayer and reflection. Did I pray or reflect at all? Hmm. And then I think my last one would probably have to be, I would almost try and do like how authentic was I to my true self today? And I don't want to say like how honest was I or how like, but how much did I impact the world today? How much hmm. was I my true self? Did I, did I compliment, thank people? Did I, you know, hmm. was I honest about a work situation, a confrontation, a, a situation with my wife? Was, did I brush something under the rug? How, I think that for me is like, if I was running away from things, I think that would be a perfect time to like, give me a low score. Yeah. Like how present were you and how, what was your output given your presence or were you just like flying? I like that. I think it's great. Let's do it. Why don't we do it for, I think let's be realistic, right? So your, your wedding's next week. Everyone's gonna be busy. Why don't we, maybe like the week after your wedding, we try it for a week and then we recap it. We should do like a new year's resolution starting in August, like August 1st. I think I'm, I think I'm game. I can get back from the honeymoon August, August 2nd. So I think August 1st, like I'm going to do it. Done. Let's try it for a month. We will uh, put this out for all access members for sure in our Facebook group. And then everyone can do it themselves. We'll tell people the five things we're measuring and we'll, we'll come back on it. Love it. I love it. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. You are changing our lives. Anything else there, David, the curious Canadian? No, I, I think we've gone a little long, but I think it's all great stuff. This has been fun. Thank you. Amazing. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Trading Secrets. Please remember to subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and tag your IG name as I have a full team that is looking at the comments and reaching out to you to connect with you. So thank you for being here with us. Rob, you definitely gave us an episode that no one can afford to miss. And make sure you tune in next week. (laughs) It's it's a good one. You'll want to make sure you're on that one. Another episode of Trading Secrets, one you can't afford to miss.